Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Taylor Velazquez. Back to school season can be stressful for students. According to national statistics, kids in the U.S. are experiencing a mental health crisis. National trends point to increasing behavioral problems, cyberbullying, and even school shootings. According to Education Week, there were 51 school shootings in 2022 that resulted in injuries or even death, the most since the organization started tracking these events in 2018. The weight of those trends hit close to home, as the state ranks 47th in overall youth mental health. According to the Department of Health, about two in five kids experience persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, and high school students with depression are twice as likely to drop out than their peers. Furthermore, New Mexico ranks highest among the states in adverse childhood experience, like child abuse, poverty, and substance use. And 30 of our 33 counties are designated as having a healthcare professional shortage. UNM Health Sciences Center reports that the entire state has just 22 child psychiatrists providing clinical care. This morning, we'll discuss mental health and in the back-to-school season. We'll hear from advocates, doctors, students about how we can support kids, and we'll discuss solutions and resources to mitigate the growing crisis. And we want to hear from you. Did your child go back to school yet? What conversations did you have as a family concerning school safety, mental health, or even social media? Email letstalk at kunm.org, or you can call in live at 505-277-5866. My first guest this morning is Lorena, a youth advocate with the New Mexico Alliance for School-Based Healthcare. Lorena couldn't join us live this morning since she started school last week, but we spoke yesterday about how she's feeling going into this new school year, what she's worried about, and what pressures youth are facing now. Here's a recording of some of that conversation. Hi, Lorena. Thanks for joining the show this week. It's so great to have you. You know, we're talking about how it's already back to school season, but also the youth mental health crisis that we're seeing across the country and even the world. You just started back at school last week. What year are you going into? Yes, I'm going to be a senior this year. How did you feel starting off this new school year? Did you have any worries or anxieties? And you just mentioned you're a senior, so I'm sure there's a lot of things that you're looking forward to this year. Excited to be a senior. I mean, it's cool to be kind of the top dog in the school, but also senior year comes with college applications and scholarship applications, and I think that's what I'm most worried about for this upcoming year. You all are having to deal with those academic pressures like you just mentioned and college applications, but we're also seeing other things crop up like the uptick in school violence, and the U.S. Surgeon General even issued an advisory concerning social media. What are you and your peers struggling with most? biggest part of it is just like being teenagers and trying to fit in and social media I think is definitely a big part of that because we see everyone that we know on social media and it's difficult seeing them and then thinking about yourself and thinking about how do I compare to all of these people so definitely my biggest insecurity and maybe or other teenagers is trying to fit in and understand understanding who we are as people what I'm interested in what I want to do when I grow up And it's all just kind of figuring that stuff out now as we're in high school. These past three years have been a little up and down. You know, we saw the pandemic, closed schools, and you guys had to do remote learning. But then you returned back in person. So how has the school environment changed since the pandemic? Have things been different since returning to school after remote learning? So I came into high school during the online year. So freshman year was online. And then sophomore year, it was strange because it was just like entirely new, but I noticed that a lot of students were hesitant to sort of get involved in school extracurriculars, in clubs, and I noticed that school functions weren't as popular. So I think people are just a little more hesitant to really be involved in school, but I've noticed in these past few years being back in school, involvement has gone up. We're going to be talking a lot about mental health on the show, and so many kids across the world are struggling. I know you just said involvement has gone up, but how do you and your peers support each other since you've all had such a unique experience starting out high school online? Yeah, so I've noticed that there are quite a few sort of larger communities within the school. So I'm part of the musical community, which includes the orchestra, the band, and the choir, and that's a really big and tight-knit group. There's also sports communities. I've noticed Senate communities and different communities within different clubs. And those have definitely helped me through because being part of music is something that I enjoy. So 
it's definitely helped with my mental health to be able to come to a place and play music with other people who share those interests. I'm sure it's easy to get wrapped up in all the stress and the anxiety and everything you have to get done in a day, but what are you doing to make sure you're prioritizing your mental health? I spend a lot of time with my family when I'm at home. I try to spend a lot of time with my friends, like during lunch, we kind of talk about our days, kind of decompress. And then I just also am doing a lot of things that I love, like I mentioned before, in orchestra. I'm also a member of the Color Guard. And just doing these things helps me re-energize and focus on my mental health. That was high school senior Lorena from the New Mexico Alliance for School-Based Health Centers. Later this hour, we'll hear from Lorena about how school-based health centers have served as a crucial resource for her, and she'll share some solutions she would like to see to help youth who are struggling with their mental health. But we're going to pivot, and my next guest this hour is Yasitra Tejas, Executive Director of Breaking the Silence New Mexico. Thanks for coming into our studio this morning. Thank you for having me. And Yasitra, Breaking the Silence New Mexico was founded back in 2011. Can you explain what your organization does and how your work has adapted throughout the years? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit organization and um, we promote educational literacy to teens, youth, and adults all across the state of New Mexico about the importance of mental health. We discuss mental illnesses, what are the warning signs, and talk about the importance of suicide prevention. And we just heard about from Lorena about what's on her mind going into this school year and you work with young people. Are you hearing similar stories when you're going to visit schools? What are they saying? Most definitely. Um, we're seeing that social media has a huge impact when it comes to students' mental health and um, some of the benefits and like the positive and the negative benefits that is coming from that and a lot of the social pressure and trying to adapt coming out of the pandemic into um, back into school, integrating into schools. Yeah, there's a lot going on in our schools right now. And like you said, it's asking for help, getting those warning signs out out there in the public and make sure they are aware of that. But how do we normalize asking for help? I think it's just starting to create a culture within schools, um, starting to normalize that conversation and having an open dialogue. Um, It's a community effort between the schools, the teachers, um, parents at home. And so they all need to be working together to normalize that conversation about the importance of mental health, teaching their students on how to um, identify some of the warning signs and advocate for themselves when it comes to needing to reach out. And so if that culture is not created, um, it can make it very hard for someone to reach out. And that's one of the things we advocate for is breaking down this stigma, a lot of the fear and shame that comes with reaching out for someone's mental health. And um, most importantly, education. Education about, you know, the importance of that our mental health is just as important as our physical health. They go hand in hand. And you and your colleagues are on the ground. You're visiting these kids in their schools. You're meeting them kind of where they are. But are they opening up to you guys about their anxiety and their depression, maybe fears that they have? Um, we do tend to see some, some kind of, you know, there's that level where they just kind of sit back. Um, we do see it mostly when it comes to our, our surveys and we're asking them what they're getting out of it. Um, a lot of the things that we're seeing is they're learning about what stigma is. Um, stigma is not just something that it's in, it's in their environment now. It's, it's on social media. Um, and they're more likely to be experiencing, um, anxiety, depression. Um, they're, we're seeing that they're becoming more vulnerable and open about some of the struggles that they're also going on at home when we talk about how their culture impacts mental health. And talking about just experiences outside of school, I mentioned earlier this hour that we do experience adverse childhood experience mm-hmm. or experiences at higher rates or ACEs. That's what they're known as as well. But, you know, kids are going through anxiety, depression. What tools are you giving them to make sure they're getting what they need and what's that talking mental health curriculum that you guys have? Yeah, so we talked to them about um, what mental health is versus what mental health is versus what is a mental illness, the difference. We talk about some of the warning signs um, when it comes to a mental illness. We talk about um, how to normalize a conversation, what impacts someone from reaching out, and then we follow up and end with the importance of self-care. Um, it's easy to just say, oh, take self-care, but it's more than that. It's it's our emotional self-care. It's our social, our physical, um, our environmental 
self-care. And so how are they identifying those things that they can resort to to take care of their mental health? Um, We encourage them to grade their stress level um, because that does have an impact. And if they are are identifying some of those adverse experiences that they've um, encountered, then what's the importance of taking um, responsibility of their mental health and reaching out for early intervention? And I now want to introduce my next guest in studio here with us, Dr. Kimothy Kane, Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UNM's Health Sciences Center. Good morning. Good morning. And Dr. Kane, I also want to hear about your thoughts on our youth advocate that we just heard from a couple minutes ago. So wonderful to hear her perspective and to hear her resiliency and follow her path in terms of what happened during COVID and and how she's really blossoming now. And that's not an unusual story that we do here. However, we tend to hear uh, many more children who are continuing to suffer from the after effects of COVID, children who are not able to access internet and not able to keep up with all of their classes. Um, and so, and not having social interactions, we're, we're seeing a lot of very young children in my zero to five clinic, which is very early intervention. And, and the, the, the referrals for that clinic for three, four, five-year-olds has jumped incredibly high since COVID. These children, I consider COVID babies didn't have socialization. So their social emotional development is quite low. Uh, children who maybe had speech delays were not identified. Uh, parents will talk about these children having speech therapy over a telephone, like a two or three year old. And so as a result, these children may not be able to use their voice to ask for what they need. They're becoming incredibly violent, kicked out of many preschools, daycares. And so it has me very concerned the after effects that will affect not only our children and teens and all of us, but these little ones who've started off life with such disadvantages. Definitely. And a lot of your work focuses on caring for the most vulnerable young children and improving their resiliency and their outcomes. How do solutions like or how do situations like threats of school violence, family trauma and even how consistent the world has been in the last few years affect young people and their development? It is very concerning. And, you know, there's there's talk about a new diagnosis related to the fear of um, the the environment. Uh, Children will come and say, I'm scared that I won't be around when I'm 20 or 30. I'm scared that the world is you know, on fire, that the heat is burning up cities. And, and then what if someone comes to my school and, and shoots me? And these are, these are themes that we hear every day in the clinic. And it's, it's definitely a shift that's happened over the last few years, in addition to baseline trauma that we see in New Mexico. As you mentioned, we are one of the states with the highest intergenerational trauma, meaning trauma has been passed down through grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren. Um, and then and specifically traumas related to ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Uh, trauma in the home, domestic violence, increasing parents incarcerated, uh, exposure to early substances, seeing uh, mother um, being harmed in a relationship. So these, these factors are just increasing exponentially. It's really concerning for these children. And you say, Dra, you're kind of on the ground. And how was that experience like going back into schools after COVID? Are they sharing with you those worries about climate change or school shootings, things like that? We are surprisingly not getting a lot of conversations around school shootings. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if it's because it's like it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to quite call out right now. Um but we we are seeing that there is a lack of engagement between the difference when we went from COVID um, into person. Even our facilitators were were hesitant to go back in person and, and had a little bit of fear of, of tran- that transition. Hmm. I can only imagine. But we're actually going to head to a quick break. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Taylor Velasquez. We're talking about youth mental health and the crisis that's upticking in the, across the nation. And in the midst of this back to school season, are you a mental health provider? What tools do you recommend for kids to manage their mental health? You can call in at 505-277-5866 and we'll be back in a moment. 
Our gratitude to all KUNM members for providing their support to ensure that news, as well as friendly companionship and much-needed music and storytelling, is available for all. The biggest share of KUNM's funding comes from you. Thank you. Listeners appreciate how nonprofit organizations are helping the community. Nonprofit underwriting at KUNM highlights your work while supporting KUNM programming. To become a nonprofit underwriter, call Aaron Steele at 505 277 2163. Arrested in Kuala Lumpur pro-queer protest, U.S. House Committee locks horns over pediatric trans care, and 20 years ago on the equality train. Those stories and more this week because you found This Way Out. That's This Way Out, Friday morning at 8.30, right here on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Taylor Velasquez. We're taking your calls this morning about youth mental health. Have you ever tried to make an appointment for your kid to see a provider? Give us a call at 505-277-5866, or you can shoot us an email at letstalk at KUNM.org. And I want to get back to my guest, Dr. Timothy Kane. Um, your Project Echo at UNM just launched a program to improve child and adolescent psychiatric care across the state. Can you describe what that program is and how this model will really help rural communities? ECHO is really important in terms of being able to communicate, mentor, train our colleagues who are working in in regions of New Mexico that are quite rural and they don't have access to ongoing continuing medical education in this area. Um, And so our, our goal of this program is really to facilitate the mentoring and knowledge sharing uh, between specialists in, in children's mental health to enable our primary care providers to explore the best practices that will impact the treatment of mental health challenges for children and youth in our communities. Hmm. And you all had your first monthly sessions back in June. How have those meetings been going? What feedback are you receiving from those primary care providers that are attending? It's been very successful. So people are appreciating the space to have conversations about this, uh, to explore whether it is resources or or treatment for these children, uh, because it can feel really isolating as you work in rural communities without support from colleagues. And it can be very frightening. These are these are children who are really at risk. And, and to have a child or a teen in front of you who is actively suicidal and not necessarily having the skills or the know-how how to support these children or protect them can be very disconcerting. And Ysidra, one of your primary focuses that you shared with me is doing advocating for rural New Mexico. What is it like for people trying not to only access care, but also finding the right provider that connects with them and their needs? Yeah, so um, a lot of, you know, for me personally within my career and and my expertise, I I advocate for our rural communities because I grew up in a rural community, um, a small community on the east side of New Mexico called San Jone. And um, the limited resources is can be a barrier to, to accessing and reaching out for mental health. Um, if you only have a, a few set of clinicians, um, you might have a personal connection with that person. You know them through somebody or you're likely to run into them on a daily basis. And so it can make it hesitant to to reach out for support and be vulnerable and share personal experiences Um or, you know, if you are reaching out and you're not liking that therapist, and that's okay because it's not, you know, we're not one size fits all. Um, if you don't like that clinician or, you know, that provider, it you're limited to who, you know, to where you can go next when it comes to needing support. And so what, you know, tends to happen is the the issue kind of gets unsolved. Hmm. That need for support is crucial. But Dr. Kane, we're going to be discussing the shortage of social workers here in the next few minutes. But there's been a shortage of child psychiatrists, leaving many providers with no specific training in child mental health working with these kids. Can you give us an overview of what the provider shortage is and how it's impacting kids across the state? So there's a number that's frequently used. It's through um, a, an organization called ACAP. And the number of child psychiatrists for the state of New Mexico is listed at 76. And uh, my colleagues and I, when looking at this number, thought, where are these 
who are these people? It's this very small community. And fortunately, we were able to obtain the list. And on the list were several child psychiatrists who had passed away over the years, many who have not practiced in New Mexico for five or more years, uh, retired child psychiatrists, those who are working just a handful of hours a week and not seeing new patients, so semi-retired. And and. The largest group, sadly, uh, are, are those who are practicing telehealth to uh, in other states. So it's wonderful they're providing care for these children, but the pay is higher, and so telehealth agencies have recruited them, and they're uh, providing clinical care for uh, children and teens in other states. So at the end of the day, we counted only 22 child psychiatrists clinically seeing children. And there's a vast difference from the number of 76. So important to look at what these numbers look like. Um, The other concern is that in pediatric residency, there's limited requirements to have children and teen mental health training. So many of our uh, pediatricians who hit the ground running don't necessarily know how to treat children with anxiety, depression, um, and and don't know how to triage and don't know how to assess. And so this is an area that, that is very important to me because our, our pediatric residents are wonderful to work with and really care so much about our children in New Mexico. So providing them with adequate training so that they have the skills to feel comfortable because they are they are first line. Children go to their primary care doctors for their annual visits when they have an earache. And there, there are many opportunities in place with screening that's actually in place in most primary care um, clinics so that they can also very easily implement further screening for uh, concern about suicide, depression, anxiety. And it looks like we have a call from Rick in Albuquerque. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Taylor. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, no problem. It looks like you're going to talk about social-emotional curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about that? what that is? Yes. Um, well, I'm a fifth-grade teacher here in Albuquerque, and I also volunteer with uh, a nonprofit group called the Choose Love Movement, which was actually founded by one of the parents of the kids that was murdered at Sandy Hook. And she took that grief and turned it into a social-emotional curriculum for schools and after-school centers up to grade 8. And while we're not psychologists or really any other, um, the the curriculum has been vetted and and gone through uh, CASEL, which is the leading social-emotional think tank. Um, And I've been using it in my classroom for three years now, and it's just absolutely fantastic. I know that uh, the MAS Charter School here in Albuquerque is another school that's really taken it on and uh, had great results with it in terms of, you know, your guest was speaking about how a lot of these kids that are coming through school now haven't had any social experience, um, you know, and so, so they're behind the curve on the social-emotional learning, and that's what we aim to Uh, transform is getting these kids exposed um, explicitly and implicitly um, with this program. Thanks for calling in, Rick. And Dr. Kane, I kind of want to get your reaction. You know, Rick just mentioned how kids are so far behind the curve because of the pandemic. What are the long-term psychological effects of kids not being diagnosed early if they do have a mental health condition? That's a very good question. It was during my adult psychiatry training where I was just seeing so many adults who were decades into struggling with a a mental illness and had not received treatment and feeling that it often felt very hopeless and it's very hard to change adults and our patterns and our beliefs. And my sense was we as a community have failed these people. We could have intervened and supported Uh, a young mother who was single and raising this vulnerable, uh, now adult, then little boy. Uh, Schools could have intervened. And you you hear the story in all of these gaps where this adult could have had help and now struggling so much with substance use disorder and severe mental illness. It was really heartbreaking. So the beauty of intervening early, like for example, in the zero to five clinic or, or with children and teens is that they're incredibly resilient. And it's it's really rewarding to see children bounce back. And families, families, it's also a unique period in time where adults are willing to look at, say, for example, parenting, 
uh, to say, what can I do differently for my child? And so it's a, it's a magic moment that's so important when we can have the opportunity to intervene, that these children have a significant chance for improvement and doing well in their communities. And, you know, we're talking about how crucial early intervention is, but also the provider shortage. So in your experience right now, what you're seeing, what are the current wait list list times for psychotherapy appointments? That's a great question. So at UNM, at Programs for Children and Adolescents, which is um, so in children's behavioral health, we have uh, a group of child psychiatrists and a group of therapists that provide different therapies. So depending on what type of therapy you're looking at, if it's, if it's just general uh, individual therapy, the wait has been over a year. And currently the program is making some changes where they can facilitate walk-in clinics for children who have had assessments through them. So they're going back to those children from February. So I want you to think about that. This is August. That's an improvement over a year, but that is a long time. Uh, in the communities, some of our best agencies that provide wraparound care and evidence-based treatment for young children, the wait can be six months to a year. Wow. And I actually want to get to my next guest to discuss more of the shortage that we're seeing. I want to introduce Alvin Sully, Chair of the Social Work Workforce Task Force and Professor Emeritus at the New Mexico State University. Alvin, thank you for joining us by Zoom this morning. Thank you. And thank you, Taylor, for putting this very critical issue forward in the community. Yeah, I'm glad we're having this conversation. And, you know, we're having this conversation about the shortage of social workers, but it seems like there is a shortage across the board in New Mexico. How does this shortage, especially in school counselors, impact youth mental health? Well, normally the social worker is the first person that the principal or teacher refers a child to who's having issues. And we do have a tremendous shortage. There are some solutions on the way. The legislature's appropriated $70 million for improving the social work workforce through endowments, increasing the number of faculty at the five schools of social work, and also providing stipends to take uh, graduates from their master's level to the clinical level. It's so critical. The other problem we're facing is that most social workers are funded only through special education. And there are very few social workers dealing with the general student population. The way that this happens in most schools is that the social worker identifies or has a child referred to them. If they're a threat in some way, you're talking about the violence in the school, then they normally talk to the principal. And if it's serious enough, then that child is placed out of the school and um, the investigation goes forward. So that's very, very critical. The caseloads, we're having trouble. Like Dr. Kane said, you have to really dig to find the statistics on how many social workers there are in the schools um, and what level they are. We know, according to the Legislative Finance Committee, there's a critical need for more baccalaureate social workers who are licensed, and the schools need more social workers with the general population. Hmm. And Source New Mexico recently reported that college students in New Mexico are facing barriers to completing their social worker programs. They said some students never received any pay for field placements and that financial support support would be critical in getting these students licensed and in the field. Are these barriers something that the task force has encountered? Uh, Yes, we've encountered them. Uh, I testified or sent testimony to the Legislative Health and Human Services Committee, which, by the way, just concluded three days of hearings on behavioral health in Las Vegas. And in that uh, testimony, I requested $30 million more to support student stipends and help with the field placement payment. What we run into with social work is at the graduate level, they're required 1,000 hours. At the undergraduate level, 400 hours in an agency supervised by at least a licensed master social worker. If an agency takes one of their staff off, they're losing billable hours. So this is a critical factor in a number of agencies. And through this, uh, uh, then we'd have $50 million in endowment 
to use some of that money for stipends for tuition and to pay for the, or help defray the costs of their uh, field placements, which for single mothers, which we have a high number of, um, you know, that costs in childcare and transportation and there are other costs that are very critical to a single mother coming back to college to get their social work degree. It sounds like the task force is providing some solutions, but are there larger legislative solutions that can be made to address the shortage, or is it just funding at this point? Well, no, it's more than funding. It's uh, making sure social workers are included with the recent raises that went to teachers. Now, the Albuquerque Public School District uh, chose to include social workers, so that's a piece of legislation that Senator T.C. Pino is working on. The other thing, the best way I think to capture what we're doing is in September, the uh, there's a symposium on social services workforce, September 13th through 15th. If you're interested in attending and the program is outstanding, we have people coming in from all over the country and quite a few New Mexicans because we're kind of leading and looking at the social work workforce. Uh, but if you just Google social service symposium or go to the cornerstone to excellent website you can uh, look at that program and hopefully attend because we're totally solution focused and we don't believe in complaining unless we come up with some solutions and you know i want to get back to our point about the barriers that social work students are facing you know i mentioned that they're not receiving pay for field placements but is this situation different from other healthcare affiliated fields like maybe nursing or physical therapy i i'd, I'd have to have those uh fields speak to it but i know in social work it has been unfortunately the norm through the years that students it's considered an academic course and not paid. I know when I directed the School of Social Work for 18 years, any chance we got to have a paid field placement, we did it. There are some issues that when a student's being paid, they're really not an employee because they're also there to learn. And so you have to structure the learning around what the agency's willing to pay. That's why I think the way to go is through stipends that have help offset uh, the in the agency just to learn and they're not viewed as an employee that may be doing things that don't help with their learning. So I hope that the legislature will go ahead and appropriate another 30 million and that'll go a long way to deferring those costs. It seems like we're in a really crucial state right now for New Mexico and hiring more social workers and getting them through school. So what reform is needed to make sure people feel empowered and they can be successful going through their program? Well, I think that, that the schools of social work have to have for accreditation purposes and to provide quality education, small um, or high, uh, a small um, professor to student ratios. and. So far, I just sat through a hearing this week where a new graduate program is being approved and it was unanimously by that group to help people understand that social work is a profession and that as such, it needs to have, we need to maintain the credentialing process. And so we're working hard on that. To, and the legislature, I was up there almost every day this past year I have never heard such an understanding of what social workers do and the need for social workers as I have in the past 50 years that I've been dealing with the legislature. So I'm very optimistic. I think we need to keep pushing. I think the symposium's gonna help bring a focus to the need for more social workers. And we know CYFD, Children, Youth and Families Department has a huge number of vacancies of licensed social workers. So that's another area we're looking at as well. And CYFD has, I believe it's 50 positions for clinical social workers uh, within the agency. 
Well, it sounds like there's some work that we need to make some progress on, but we're going to take a quick break real quick. We're talking about youth mental health crisis as students across New Mexico head back to school. I'm Taylor Velasquez, and we'll be back in a minute. Support provided by Organic Books, a family-owned independent bookstore in Albuquerque's Knob Hill. The doors are open 11 to 6 every day for new and used books, journals, cards, and gift certificates. More information at organicbooks.net. Listeners appreciate how nonprofit organizations are helping the community. Nonprofit underwriting at KUNM highlights your work while supporting KUNM programming. To become a nonprofit underwriter, call Aaron Steele at 505-277-2163. On The Well Woman Show this week, I interview Zainab Tan, author of The Good Jobs Strategy, professor at MIT and president of the Good Jobs Institute, where she works with companies to improve their operations in a way that satisfies employees, customers, and investors alike. I saw that companies could win with their customers and provide good jobs. Join me, Giovanna Rossi, for The Well Woman Show this Friday at 8 a.m. right here on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're talking about the potential solutions to strengthen our mental health system for kids. There's still time to call in this morning, so give us a call at 505-277-5866. And I want to get back to my last guest we were talking to before the break, Alvin Salee. And Alvin, we were talking about the barriers that some social work students are facing, but New Mexico also has the lowest pass rate for licensure exams. Why is that? Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm glad you brought that up. That's not true. I've gone over the statistics. I'm sorry that information got out. That's absolutely not true. All of our um, programs are at or above average on passing the licensure exam. And you see, Drew, we're talking about the mental health crisis impacting school communities, and it seems like it's hitting students, counselors, and teachers. Are you hearing from school counselors and teachers about their own burnout and their stress and making sure their students are doing all right mentally and how their own families are doing as well. Most definitely. Um, we are getting a lot of teachers that are coming to us and asking us for that extra support and educating their students about mental health because as a teacher, they are feeling really ill-equipped when it comes to addressing and supporting that mental health aspect of their students. And then also on top of that, um, add on the be the behavior that comes with a student struggling. Um, I don't, you know, that I, I think that's something that would be helpful for teachers to to get is mental health education when it comes when they're in their graduate program, um, and counselors as well too. The the counselor to student ratio, um, I see is a barrier when we're getting a lot of counselors who kind of on, on a little bit of eggshells about, you know, students reaching out after our curriculum, which which is what we hope, right? It's what we, it's intended and designed to do is for students to reach out. But um, counselors are struggling with feeling like they're more focused on the, the academic level versus um, being able to do what they were trained and, and they went to school for, and, and that's to support their students' mental health. And Alvin, you said you just made the point that so many teachers are feeling ill-equipped to handle their students' mental health. What are the dangers of teachers and staff essentially practicing social work when they're not trained to do so? Well, <laughs> as I'm sure Dr. Kane knows, uh, one of the principles we teach is do no harm that we can help and we can sometimes do harm. Uh, so we are including educators in our symposium because again, the teachers are the front line. And I'm, I'm, I think that, well, I'll just leave it at that, but it, I think it's critical that uh, we have the recognition of expertise and the teachers I know, and I come from a large family of teachers they understand their purpose is to educate students. And unfortunately, society has put all these other duties on top of what the schools are doing. And one is to address poverty, to address uh, my wife has gone home with students to find, or homeless students to find what the conditions are because they didn't have a social worker at their school. And so I think that we need to, 
free teachers to do what they're trained to do. And one of the ways to do that is to provide more social workers in the schools. The state just appropriated $50 million for endowed teacher faculty. How can this money help to move the state out of the shortage in professionals? Were you asking about the social workers or teachers? Yeah, that new money that was just appropriated, that $50 million. Yeah. Yeah, the, the $50 million, and actually it had just all of it went out uh, to the schools of social work. First of all, they have to wait at least one year till the endowment begins to produce a profit. Then they have to hire faculty. That money was intended, uh, it originated in the Legislative Finance Committee, to produce 25 faculty that will be focused totally on teaching and they should produce an additional 500 social workers per year. But like I said, it's going to take a few years to get into that system. One of the things the um, task force has done is studied the pathway to becoming a social worker. And one is that, quite frankly, if you if you say social, it's a bad connotation in our society among many political groups. So it's getting people to understand what social workers do and then help students understand as early as possible what the track is to get there. Because the last two years of their undergraduate program are pretty much all social work courses. And then the graduate degree, uh, for those who do not have an undergraduate degree in social work, is 60 to 63 graduate hours. So it's a big investment. And we're looking at from A to Z, what it takes to become a social worker. And then more critically, we're finding out is to retain that person in the workforce. Retention is so critical and it's not given enough attention in my view. And we actually have a caller from Bill, uh, Bob from Las Lunas. Hi, good morning, Bob. Good morning. And it looks like- you know, you, my comment, <clears throat> go ahead. It looks like you have a creative solution to some of the youth mental health crises we're seeing right now. Yes, ma'am. I've been doing equine therapy for over 20 years, and the last few years we've been, uh, and I've been working with juvenile probation kids. So uh, the last few years we've been kind of experimenting with mixing in some other types of uh, people with our group. And one one group that we invited was uh, like a representative from AA, and they would come in and talk to the kids and and the kids were just kind of ho-hum. But in the last couple of years, what I've incorporated is is these guys that are out on parole that have already been through the system, and they started out young, and, you know, they got in trouble, and through no fault of their own, you know, just hard living conditions and all this. But what I learned is is when those paroled inmates, which probably most people look at as the most terrible people in society, but a lot of them are really sincere and really want to help the kids avoid what they've gone through. Those kids are sitting on the edge of their seat listening to every word that those guys have. And I think, you know, uh, some of the uh, prison systems do have a program where they can, you know, where they screen these guys and they can send them out to you. And, you know, it's a really, I think it'd be a really positive thing for those kids to hear from these paroled inmates. Definitely. Definitely. And thanks for sharing that. I'm sure that's some good news that we all appreciate hearing this morning. And I actually want to get to my last guest this hour, also on Zoom, Nancy Rodriguez, Executive Director of the New Mexico Alliance for School-Based Healthcare. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me. So there are about 70 school-based health centers in New Mexico, and we did a whole show about them earlier this year. But would you remind our listeners about how school-based health centers work? Sure. So school-based health centers are a model of integrated care. So um, the model is for primary care and mental health care to be located in the same place, which is where students and young people are, which is in schools. And the model also is to have immediate access, particularly for families that don't have easy access to health care in the community. So far this morning, we've heard about how students are struggling, accessing diff- or difficulties accessing mental health care and the shortage of providers. There's a lot of things going on right now. But how do school-based health centers close those gaps? 
Well, part of, uh, you know, the model is the location. And for our most vulnerable families who maybe are working multiple jobs, who do not have transportation, or for young people who need to access care and their parents are not interested in helping them access that care, school-based health centers can be a really good solution. That's not to say that the challenges that other esteemed guests have have mentioned don't affect school-based health centers. We're really lucky that the legislature uh, made a significant expansion investment in this last session for school-based health centers, and we are going to see the number of school-based health centers increase in the next year or two. However, school-based health centers have the same challenges that community behavioral health centers have in finding social workers. Um, the model of school-based health typically is a nurse practitioner or PA and a social worker with an MA or a coordinator. So it's a small clinic in the school, um, but they still need to be able to find those primary care and behavioral health providers to work in um, school-based health centers. So that's definitely a challenge school-based health centers have, but um, hopefully it's a unique model that people who are particularly interested in pediatric and adolescent mental health will be attracted to. And for some folks, the um, school setting can be really appealing. So there are wait lists sometimes in school-based health centers, not typically at this point in the school year, but it is a challenge we deal with. Um, but I think school-based health centers working alongside school nurses, school social workers do a really good job of triaging and make sh making sure that kids are in the right place. So, may you know, maybe they need um, sort of urgent mental health care to deal with a crisis in the family or at home, but they don't need ongoing therapy um, and others may need ongoing therapy. So I think school-based health centers are in a good position to collaborate with school um, staff to make sure kids get the care they need where they need and then refer out if that's a possibility and a need. Hmm. And who is providing the help of or who is providing the help in school-based health centers? Are they trained to work with kids specifically? So typically it's a school social, I mean, it's not a school social worker, a social worker, but someone who's attracted to working with that population. And I know that the operators of school-based health centers, which is a mix of federally qualified health centers, hospitals, um, community clinics, seek folks who have experience with the pediatric population. And some of those folks have come from school social work positions. Um, and but not always. But I think that it's a unique position that those folks are in and that they're attracted to. Um, and we have in New Mexico um, a high diagnosis rate of something called adjustment to disorder. Um, and we see that a lot in school based health centers. So often they're dealing with young people who just need support in self-regulation. They may not have um, a clinical diagnosis at the point that they come to the school-based health center. They may just be struggling with stress, as um, Lorena mentioned, or they may have had a death in the family. They may have, you know, significant academic stresses that they're trying to manage. So the social workers are... Um, you know, if they aren't to begin with, they get really good at knowing what the issues young people bring to the school-based health center are and help them find coping mechanisms. And there are a fair number of school-based health centers that also do groups. Um, so they can have young people together who are dealing with the same issues. That might be sleep issues. That might be stress. That might be um, the students in the LGBTQ plus community who um, want to talk to their peers about how they're coping. So that's another unique thing that school-based health centers can do and that helps with capacity issues around workforce to treat multiple kids at the same time, if that's the setting that the kids um, are interested in. Hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of collaboration going on, but could school-based health centers uh, with the mental health services they provide be the key to reducing anxiety and depression episodes in kids in our state that suffer so much from those episodes. And a lot of them are from rural uh, communities like we've talked earlier in this hour. I think that's a good point, Taylor, because we have seen in the last two years, I mean, if you look at the data coming out of um, treatment in school-based health centers, the rural communities is where we've seen a higher uptick in depression, anxiety, and certainly school-based health centers are part of the solution. Um, and I think particularly if there are um, obstacles in the family setting that prevent young people from getting care, unlike a school social worker, a social worker in a school-based health center because it's a medical entity can provide confidential mental health services, which because of ACEs and challenges in families can be really important in our state to provide. And Alvin, I want to come back to you. Do you think schools are the best place to invest infrastructure for mental health care for kids? 
Yes. <laughs> and I think the the health centers are an excellent model. I didn't want to talk too much about that before because I really support it, but I knew Nancy was coming up later. But absolutely, wraparound services, all of that is uh, taught in the schools of social work. And then the uh, Eastern New Mexico University has proposed and is in the process of implementing a master's program focused on rural mental health and clinical practice, as well as military families, which is a group that gets left out a lot, but that is critical. So absolutely. And Nancy, we've heard earlier that some educators are struggling themselves in taking on more responsibility when it comes to following up on their students' mental well-being. Can these school-based health centers really support staff mental health as well? They can. They don't always. It really depends on the relationship that the school-based health center has with the school. Some schools let staff and faculty use the services of the school-based health center. When that happens, it's usually in set-aside hours to preserve the confidentiality of young people. Um, and some schools, because of you needing to use substitutes, have not um, added that service, but they can be part of the solution. And, you know, our organization is uh, supports primarily school-based health centers, but we support all school-based health care. And I think there are other models that, you know, together in, in a complement can be helpful. And um, for example, Representative Pamela Herndon um, carried a bill to have a pilot for wellness rooms in schools. And here in Albuquerque, um, El Dorado High School has a beautiful model of wellness centers. And what I've heard from colleagues in other states is that not only do wellness rooms where students really just need an opportunity to self-regulate, they don't necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. diagnosis. They just need some time, some space, and some support to self-regulate. Um, what I've heard from colleagues in other states is that often staff and faculty are going to the wellness rooms too because they need that that same opportunity because we are asking a lot of people who work in schools, particularly right now, and and you know those are those are our underpaid heroes um, at, at every level in schools and and hopefully school-based health centers, but other models, school nurses, school social workers, wellness rooms can together um, really provide the support for staff and for students to thrive. Isidra, you know, your nonprofit or organization really helps kids set those boundaries, begin how to talk about it, where they're going, what their mental health, what their goals are. So do you think these center, centers could really teach kids to advocate for their own health? Most definitely. I think any resources and um, support tools that are put in place um, for these students to be able to resort to when they are reaching out just sh again goes back to normalizing that that conversation and opening that dialogue and showing the support that it is okay to struggle it is okay to take that break um, that mental health break when you need to and and regulate definitely and that's all the time we have for today. Um, thanks to everyone who called in and emailed to share your thoughts. And thank you so much to our guests, Nancy Rodriguez, Lorena, Dr. Kane, Alvin Sully, and Yusidra Tejas. The show was made possible by the WK Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Let's keep the conversation going. You can share your ideas on Facebook, search for KUNM Radio, or even email us at letstalk at KUNM.org. If you missed part of the show, you can stream it online or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next week on the show, we'll talk about remote work and returning to the office. Our engineer this morning was Marino Spencer. Mia Casas took your calls and Cafe Mohead is our executive producer. I'm Taylor Velasquez. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM 89.9.